Hello and welcome to Sabertown. Let's get on that Sabre train and ride, ride into the wonderful world of sobriety. You may be listening on to this on any platform, um, but I just want to let you know that this has been recorded for the Sabertown podcast, um, www.sabertownpodcast.com, where you can see on all sorts of resources, all sorts of tools. It's a one-stop shop for your sobriety and you can hear all the podcasts that we we record. Um, I'm Karina and I'm coming to you from the UK and today I'm, I'm rather late on my train of picking up my guests because I got my time zones a bit mixed up. So um, just four hours behind me and not six hours as expected, but you know, this is British Rail, so we're, we're, it's okay to be two hours late. <laughs> I have just picked up the lovely Cece. Hi. Hello. I'm, I'm very patient. I don't mind waiting for trains. I was just like reading my book. Like I was good. That's you know, cool. I, I knew you'd buy, be by. You wouldn't leave me. <laughs> I wasn't I turned up eventually yeah I'm here so that's good and I'm really excited to be talking to you today um yes and we one of the things that we we met sort of on the I am Sabre app and I'd I'd put out sort of a request for people that I wanted to sort of interview and you came forward very kindly um wanting to talk about something that's very very dear to my heart um and that is about sobriety and the connection with mental health so about drinking mental health and sobriety and so I'm really really excited to hear about your journey um and about how you get into all this um so I'll hand it over to you to fill me in thank you um yeah I saw there was a couple people that I've met that have been like you know you should do the podcast and I was just like no. And, and then, then I saw your post and, and I couldn't help myself. Um, but mental health um, has been a really big part uh, of my, of my life. And uh, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was 23 years old. And I'm now 38 years old. So the majority of my adulthood, um, I've been uh, living with a diagnosed mental illness for which I have been um, seeking treatment for the entire time. I have the psychiatrist, I have medications, I have a therapist, I've got it all. Um, and I think um, in terms of my uh, journey through sobriety, um, my mental health and my sobriety are, they're married, basically, they are, they are connected. And I didn't really, re really re uh, realize how much they reinforced each other. They had like this reciprocal relationship that was kind of going on. I think um, I described it as like, they're stuck together, like they're sticky. And um, what's kind of been happening as I've been progressing through my sober journey, I'm at a 101 days today, um, is that I'm starting to be able to, um, unstick them. That's not to say that they're not interconnected, but I'm starting to be able to, to kind of hash out which one is which. And I think knowing what I know about my illness, about uh, bipolar disorder, and I describe myself as a person living with bipolar disorder. So it wasn't until I really stopped drinking that I was able to um, start separating the two a little bit um, and sort of realizing that they um, they were still connected, but 
um, they weren't maybe as stuck together as, as I thought. And um, I knew from the get-go with my mental health diagnosis, um, you know, bipolar disorder is a mood disorder um, where there is um, fluctuations in mood, uh, sometimes rapid fluctuations in mood, uh, which we describe as alternating between depression and mania, mania being an elevated state, depression obviously being a lower state. And you kind of cycle back and forth in between these things, sometimes to extremes, sometimes not. And it is very well documented. And, and like I said to you before we started, I'm not going to sit here and spew out statistics at you because I want you to think of me as a person, not as a number. But um, it is very likely that people that are diagnosed with bipolar disorder at some point may have difficulties with addictive behaviors. Um, you know, whether that is shopping, gambling, alcohol, drugs, you know, there, there is a connection, there's a documented connection. And so being diagnosed with bipolar disorder at such a young age, um, I became aware of a lot of these things. And so I, I wouldn't say that I was addicted to alcohol. Um, but I think that I was well on my way. And um, I think what kind of happened, what sort of set this in motion was, uh, you know, from, from the day that I received my mental health diagnosis and chose to take medication, um, I had always received a lot of warnings on my medications from my doctors. You know, you should not be drinking alcohol with this. They all, all the pill bottles had the stickers and all that kind of stuff. And, um, I remember point blank being told by my doctor, like, you know, you need to slow, you need to stop drinking. But I was in university and I was like, no, I'm not, no, you know, I was, I was having a good time with my friends. And so I actively chose to continue drinking, um, even though I had been advised not to uh, by pharmacists and medical doctors. And I, I did that for over 15 years. And what, what was it that, that made you continue drinking? Do you think, was it peer pressure? Was it just because it was, that's what was done or? I think it was a combination of a couple different things. You know, I had finally, in my last year university, I fell in with a, a crowd of people. They weren't like negative influences, but I made a lot of good friends and that's how we had fun. And I didn't want to be excluded from that. I wanted to have that experience because I, I went to community college to start and then I went to university. So I, I hadn't stayed in residence and I hadn't made, you know, friends from the very beginning of my degree. And I kind of joined in the university scene like a year or two later. And so, you know, I had finally established a group of friends and I didn't want to, I didn't want to be left out from that. And I kind of started realizing I, I always knew for a very, very long time that I had a very anxious personality type. And I always sort of felt that when I was about two or three drinks in, that's what I would be like if I wasn't anxious. Like I actually had this feeling like I was connecting with who I would be like if I wasn't anxious. And so I was kind of viewing alcohol as a path uh, to myself. Yeah, that's why I continued drinking despite being advised uh, not to. 
so do you think it was a way of fitting in or do you feel that you had fitted in before that with your alcohol? I don't know. Like I, I think I fit in, in the sense that, you know, what I, what I took in university and the people I was hanging out with and like academically, I was definitely fitting in with these people. I don't think that I needed alcohol to fit into with, with the people that I was, I was hanging out with. Um, but I think that I found that um, there was a different layer of me when I was um, hanging out with them and drinking. I felt I, I felt like a funner version of myself. You know, I felt um, a, a little bit more like uncensored, you know, and um, I actually kind of felt like it was a bit freeing um, and of course, what kind of started happening is that when I did eventually start taking medication, um, the effects of drinking alcohol with the medication started creating some undesirable effects like um, blacking out, passing out, you know, making myself or not making myself but sick, but getting sick. Um, there was this uh, one time that I woke up from being passed out on my kitchen floor and my phone, this was before cell phones, but my phone was off the hook and it was making that like beeping noise. Mm -hmm. And I woke up and I had no idea that I was home. And I looked at my phone and my phone had been off the hook for like four hours. And so definitely when I started taking medication, I'm trying to you know, treat my mental health, but I'm trying to maintain the life that um, I previously had. And so then all of a sudden, it wasn't just, you know, lowering the inhibitions, you know, being a bit goofy or going out and having fun, all of a sudden, um, I was trying to do those things, but I was now blacking out. My behavior was even more erratic, I was passing out, I was losing, you know, memory. And then but what I was continuing to try to achieve what I had had before, right? But mm -hmm. that wasn't going to happen now that I was taking medication that was enhancing the effects of alcohol. And um, even though my doctor told me, no, you know, you really should stop. I just, I just really, really wanted to, to, to keep on fitting in, you know, I didn't, I wasn't ready to be the person um, that just didn't. And I, I wouldn't say that my friends were peer pressuring me. I think more than anything, I was almost peer pressuring myself really is what was happening is that I was kind of psyching myself out um, in terms of being the only one not drinking or moderating. And um, it's eventually that, you know, I've realized many, many years later that, um, moderation has been a real problem for me, a real problem for me for quite a long time. And so when I've said before that, I'm not sure that I can say that I am addicted to health alcohol, but I can definitely say that I really, really feel like I, I was, or I was on that path. And I think that, you know, 101 days ago, I recognize that and I, I decided to put a stop to it because I think if I would have kept on carrying on, 
I, I would have been in a, a much um, deeper state of addiction, I think. Initially, I was a binge drinker. Uh, I, when I was in university and in my early 20s and stuff like that, when uh, I was getting together with friends and doing things, you know, I wasn't the person having like two or three drinks. I was the person having eight, nine, 10, 11 drinks, um, you know, to the, to the point of passing out. That was my thing, right? Um, I have never been a designated driver up until recently. I was, I, you, you could never count on me to be responsible enough to drive a car. Um, I, I've never uh, driven drunk or anything like that, but, you know, people knew that when I was going out, I was going all out. Um, I started drinking, um, I would say close to daily, uh, probably in my, in my thirties, uh, I'm 38 now. Um, I briefly, uh, for about two years, managed a, a winemaking store and alcohol all of a sudden became part of my daily life, you know, and uh, going to work and during the course of a work day, sometimes having anywhere from like three to six drinks a day became, uh, you know, the norm, Um you know, quality control, <laughs> you know, is what we kind of file that under, I guess, you know, but then I built up quite a, a wine collection in my home. I had over 500 bottles of wine in my home. Wow. Right. Um, just to kind of show you how like wine centric I was, um, I would decide what to eat for dinner based on what wine I was having. Right. So I wasn't like saying, hey, I'm going to have this for dinner. What wine pairs with this? I would be like, no, I'm going to drink this wine tonight. What can I pair with that? Um, and so, you know, going through a bottle of wine a night um, with my partner, that, um, that started out. And then one bottle became two bottles. And then we got these really large wine glasses um, when I got married. They were this, these fishbowl wine glasses, and they could fit an entire bottle of wine. And so one bottle became two bottles, became three bottles. And when you have that much alcohol in the house, um, I, I could never just like leave it. And yeah, and eventually, you know, when I stopped working at the wine store, I did have a baby and, you know, I stopped drinking while I was pregnant. Um, and you know, eventually what just sort of happened is that if I had alcohol in the house, I had to drink it. It was like, it was burning a hole in the fridge. You know, it's like, if it's there, it's got to be finished. You know, I could never have just the one glass and then leave the bottle for the next day. I found that so hard, like unbelievably hard. Like it annoyed me. Like in terms of my mental health, I, I mentioned that I've had anxiety for a very long time. And I don't want to go into like the specific diagnostic criteria of obsessive compulsive disorder and all this kind of stuff. I will say that OCD is mischaracterized very, very frequently. And many people use the term inaccurately. Um, but I can tell you that, um, you know, based on my work with um, medical professionals, mental health professionals, I do have obsessive and compulsive tendencies. And Perfect. this contributed to 
um, needing to finish, right? Or another thing that I do, I can't have one glass, I have to have three glasses, right? So I started creating like these patterns. So then it would be like, okay, I'll have three bottles of red wine, then I'll have one white wine. And then I would create a different pattern. Okay, now I'm going to drink them in alphabetical order, right? And then I would arrange them by color, you know? <laughs> so I started creating these weird patterns um, surrounding drinking, and I had to fulfill the pattern, right? Um, that lasted for a little while. Um, and then I kind of fell out of it, but I, I do have a tendency in my life to latch onto things and find the need to create a pattern to them. And for a while there, for a couple of years, that's what I was doing with drinking. I was even rotating the wine glasses that I was using, you know, um, just sort of almost creating like this little ritual, right? And if I couldn't complete the ritual, if I didn't do it in the right way, then that would cause me even more anxiety, which was weird because part of the reason why I was drinking was because I was wanting to decrease my anxiety and connect with that person that I thought was me. You know, I thought me was about three drinks in, you know, so it was a very weird relationship. Um, and so I've learned now that these were just one of many signs that moderation is an issue for me. And I clearly, clearly identify with that right now. And so I don't identify, I've, I don't identify personally with the word alcoholic or alcoholism. I, that's not to say that other people don't, but for me, I've identified that I do not have a healthy relationship with alcohol. I have trouble moderating. And when I'm asked why I'm drinking, it is never because I'm having fun with my friends. It is very much rooted in escapism. And the day that I stopped drinking was the day that I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, I said, why did you drink last night? And I did not like the answer. And that's when I officially stopped. When you were doing the rituals, did you think that anything bad would happen if you didn't carry those rituals out? It wasn't to the sense like I, you know, some people that do have um, obsessive and compulsive tendencies do have very legitimate fears that something very bad will happen to them if they don't carry out their rituals. Um, I'm not really sure that I clearly identified what that bad thing would be. I think that I connected with that bad thing being that I would feel uncomfortable, you know, that it would bug me. Um, so I think it was um, maybe some type of like a, a reassurance to me almost, uh, or a way of putting my mind at ease. It's a, a way of exerting control. Um, really, one of the one of the things that is, I guess, I don't want to say soothing, but one of the, the things, you know, with many people that have anxiety, um, control is, is something that is really, um, you, you crave it. And um, it helps to, um, I guess, sort of lift a little bit of that discomfort that you're feeling. And so I didn't have anything clear 
like, you know, this bad thing is going to happen to me. It was more so you're not going to feel comfortable and this is going to bug you and you're going to be bugged about it all day and you're going to think about it all day. And when the same thought spins around in your mind so much, like over and over and over again, eventually it's going to become distorted. It's kind of like playing that game of telephone when you whisper the message around and around and around and eventually the outcome isn't the same as the original message. And that's what I would find would happen to me if I had something stuck in my head, like, oh, you you didn't do that. You should have done it this way. And it kept on going around and around in my head. By the time it came out, whatever it was, it had distorted or mutated into some other different type of anxiety or some other type of different thing, I guess. And so it was just easier for me to just, you know, if I created something, a ritual or a pattern or whatever, I just kind of did it to, you know, lessen lessen the, um, I don't like saying disease, right? I like dis-ease, like to lessen the discomfort. Okay, so we're back. Um, we do have a bit of a bag signal today, so I'm now outside the train. So you may hear lawnmowers and ducks and geese and all sorts, but hey, it's nature, it's okay. <laughs> let's, it, let's embrace it all. Um, there's a couple of things that I wanted to ask you, Cece. Um, do you think you ever used alcohol to self-medicate for your bipolar disorder? Absolutely. Um, probably... I think I probably started self-medicating with alcohol um, before I even started taking medication um, for bipolar disorder. Um, I, like I mentioned, uh, I was diagnosed in my last year of university when I was 23. And, you know, I was going out and drinking with friends like university students um, do uh, before I received my diagnosis. However, over time, um, how I was self-medicating with the um, with alcohol was changing. Um, I kind of became less of a binge drinker, um, and you know, it kind of started becoming more of a three days a week, four days a week. You know, eventually, sometimes you know, like you know, up to every day. Maybe it was just one glass a day, but other times it was significantly more. But um, I started. Uh, becoming really self-conscious about myself and especially in social, social situations. And I had kind of created this habit of always drinking in social situations. Like, you know, if the option was there, I did. And I wasn't necessarily drinking to excess, but I was always getting in at least those two to three drinks. And then the idea of going to a um, any type of social function without having any alcohol, that became very scary. And I think that's when I started to develop a bit of a dependency. Like, you know, um, if I'm going to be out in public socializing with people, I need to have drinks. And so then I was always pre-drinking before I went out. And then I started taking my anxiety medication 
um, with uh, whatever I was pre-drinking. Typically it was uh, wine. I was a bit of a wine snob. And of course I do have, at the time I knew this and I know this now, I should not be taking anti-anxiety medication with alcohol, but that's what I was doing. And, um, you know, so I think I mentioned, uh, you know, I'd gotten married, I got divorced and then, you know, in my late thirties, I'm, I'm in a serious relationship now. And my current partner, he's a very social person, very. And he is one of those people that very easily moderates alcohol, like effortlessly. And he had about a gajillion friends that I had to meet. I didn't have to meet them all at the same time, but it seemed like every weekend we had someone to meet and he was excited to introduce me to his friends and stuff like that. And I was kind of excited too, you know, like, you know, I had like a six-year-old daughter. I hadn't been doing a lot of things socially, you know, this will be good for me. But then I was so nervous, all that, um, that connection that I made with having to drink whenever I was social um, was really popping up, especially when I was meeting new people. And so it was like, pop anxiety medication, have a glass of wine, pop anxiety medication, have two glasses of wine, pop two anxiety medications, you know, and taking those together, you know, became uh, the norm before we went out you know, because I would get the chest pain and all this kind of stuff. And uh, I even sometimes get it so anxious to the point that I feel like I'm vibrating, like from, I guess, my chest outwards. Um, you know, so I know that, you know, I've told you that I've been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which is a mood disorder. But um, as you can tell, anxiety, um, it's, it's a, it's a secondary diagnosis that goes with it. And this overabundance and anxiety can do one of two things to me. It will either drag me down and feel depressed, or it will pull me up <laughs> and make me elevated. So the anxiety does um, play a factor in with the mood. Um, but on a daily basis, I deal with anxiety the most. And so um, not being able to disconnect this um drinking and social engagement uh, started becoming a problem. You know, it was already a problem, it became more of a problem, you know, and like I said, I knew I, I shouldn't have been doing, I shouldn't have been combining those medications. I shouldn't have been doing that. But I felt like if I wasn't, if I didn't have a couple drinks in me, that I was going to do something to embarrass myself or embarrass my partner, which blew my mind when I had this realization. I was like, this is so ass backwards. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid that I am going to embarrass myself if I am not drinking. I don't even know what that is, <laughs> but that's how I thought. I thought that sober me would be more of a source of embarrassment than drunk me. What about now? Um, things have changed in the past hundred days. Um, I think I've really connected with a lot of people um, from the I Am Sober app. Um, and I've 
by engaging in this uh, community and especially being involved with other people who have identified alcohol as uh, an unhealthy thing in their lives. Um, the first thing is that I don't feel alone because I did feel alone. Like, why am I like this? But I've met many people that are very, very similar to me. And I've read books now too. Like, you know, for example, um, We Are the Lucky, I think it's called We Are the Luckiest by Laura McCohen. I, that was my first quit lit book. And I was like highlighting every like sentence. I was like, oh my gosh, having this realization that I was not alone was I think the biggest eye opener for me. And by connecting with people that I had this level of comfort with, I sort of naturally, I think started coming out of my shell a bit. And when I was hosting the Zoom meetings, the, the, the unofficial um, Zoom meetings when I did this, because I, I have many anxieties, but I am not afraid of talking in front of people. I don't know what's up with that. It's the strangest thing. You were amazing. I went to one of the Zoom meetings. You were just like, oh my gosh, this girl's so early in her sobriety. And she's so new to all us. And you were just like out there. You were just brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. It's, it's the craziest thing. I can't even describe it. But for some reason, um, you know, I've done a lot of mental health advocacy and, um, you know, speeches and all this kind of stuff. So putting me in front of people, and then putting me in front of people that were also um, working on the um, connecting with a sober lifestyle, I felt really at home. I felt really safe with these people. Some of these people knew more things about me than my family did. Like, and I realized, I think probably around like day 70-ish or so, I realized that I'm actually like the same, like I, I, I had this, this one zoom meeting and things weren't going to plan. And I just got so silly. And I, that might've been the one that you were on, but, um, I, I went totally like unscripted and this kind of like carefree, silly, funny person just was like kind of emerging out of me. And I remember kind of being surprised like I didn't know that happened when I didn't drink like it was I remember like ending the call and being like am I drunk on life or something like I didn't really I know it so it, it surprised me and I kind of connected with that and I was like maybe that's a one-off right and then I kind of started realizing as I continued interacting with people and that this, this part of me that I thought I could only connect with when I was drinking, that I actually could tap into it when I was completely sober. And this was like the biggest surprise to me. And I kind of realized that um, I never, like, I never really actually needed the alcohol in the first place. But, you know, somewhere early on, like I said, in my early 20s, I just I thought that I did. And I remember being sort of in a way sad when I stopped drinking because I thought I was saying goodbye to that person. I thought I was actually saying goodbye to myself. And I mourned that. And that made me kind of depressed. And that made me anxious about socializing with people because I was like, I'm going to be boring. You know, and 
then when I had that sort of epiphany, I was like, oh my goodness, maybe I can be completely okay. And um, I think every day I tap into that a little bit more. Um, like my partner's actually laughing at me more. Um, <laughs> not, you know, or like he actually thinks I'm funnier, I think. And yeah, it, it was, it was so surprising. It was, it was very surprising to have that type of just mind blowing experience that everything that you believed to be true about yourself and how your personality worked and how your anxiety was managed and how your mood was managed, that it was all a lie. And it was a lie that I created and I told myself that I needed. Yeah, you you did, but (laughs) society did as well. And so did the advertising industry and everything else around us, you know, um, because we have a belief that if you don't drink, you're boring. Oh, Mm -hmm. my God, what rubbish is that? You know, um, I'm having the most fun. Um, We are not boring when we don't drink, but we are led to believe that we will be. And, um, you know, that's why I asked you about what about now you've you found out and you've discovered that you can be really fun and you are really fun because we do kind of leave behind the old us and we do mourn it for a bit and then we realize hold on a minute I actually like this new me but this new me was always there Mm -hmm. she was always there she was always inside I just chose to numb her and hold her down for years and years and years and and do what I thought um, you know we were supposed to do and um, you know you're saying earlier you, you felt that you had to have you know you had to be the drunk me to be to be fun and to fit in and not make a fool of yourself but actually looking back on it now I don't know about you but I actually probably made more of a fool of myself when yeah. I was drunk <laughs> than when I was sober. It, it gets even crazier where it gets even crazier is okay, yes, having this realization that, yeah, oh my gosh, I can be me without alcohol. The most surprising thing that happened was that I could not make the connection between me drinking and how my mood. I honestly did not think, and I could not see how drinking was impacting my mood when I was not drinking. I could not see that connection right? I thought they were two separate things and they did not overlap. Like I was drinking, that was separate. And then when I was not drinking, that was like my mood. What I realized as well was that when I was drinking, that actually was impacting my mood when I wasn't drinking. And the day after drinking, um, you know, yeah, we hangover, dealt with that various levels of the hangover but then those feelings of like guilt and shame and regret and especially when like bits and pieces of the memory aren't there um dealing with those moods or those um, emotions right that's going to have an impact on your mood right when I'm thinking about guilt, when I'm thinking about shame, when I'm thinking about regret um, and embarrassment and all that kind of stuff, when I'm, when I'm sober, is that going to have a positive impact on my mood? No. Right. If anything, 
that's just going to drive me lower. And that's kind of what happened. And then all of a sudden I had this inflated sense of guilt. I began feeling guilty about like everything. If I didn't feel guilty, I felt guilty. And I think a lot of the issues that I've had surrounding like guilt and shame actually stemmed from um, uh, my drinking, but having to deal with those emotions while sober was, was really negatively impacting my mood. And so one of the most pleasant surprises about deciding to, uh, you know, go alcohol free is that you know, yes, I continue to work with my doctor and my therapist, and I, I personally choose to take medication. I've seen a distinct improvement in my mood. Um, I think one of the things that I wanted to talk about was that I was experiencing right before I stopped drinking something called emotional dysregulation. And this on its own, is, is a diagnosis. It's, um, it, it is found sometimes with people that have PTSD. Sometimes it's found in people that have ADHD. It's its own diagnosis, but as it pertains to bipolar disorder, it's a symptom. And so what was happening in the months leading up to when I stopped drinking, my mood was moving faster than my own consciousness, right? My mood was switching so fast. Maybe it was going from being perfectly fun and happy-go-lucky, Cheryl, and to uh, like angry. Like it was just flipping, and I didn't know it was flipping. I was not consciously aware that my mood was changing. Maybe, like I was behind it. I couldn't keep up with it, and it, it started happening when I was drinking. Like I, I couldn't, or I, I wasn't able to manage my mood when I was drinking. And obviously this was creating a lot of bad situations. You know, with my partner, we were arguing more when I was drinking. Um, I, you know, I started feeling like I was different people at one point. And then all of a sudden that started bleeding into my, you know, the day, like the days when I, when I wasn't drinking and not feeling like you can be aware or be in control of your mood is one of the most debilitating feelings I have ever had. It's the scariest thing ever because somebody else can see me changing, but I can't. And I think that was what my final straw was, you know, when I remember going to my therapist and saying, I think that I'm different people. And this was something that happened in Holly Whitaker's book, um, Quit Like a Woman. She was, she thought that she had borderline personality disorder. <laughs> and so sometimes when you're, you're, you're drinking, um, you know, maybe more than you should be, or, you know, everyone has their limits, I guess. I wasn't looking at alcohol as the problem. You know, I was like, my mental health diagnosis is wrong. I am different people. And little did I know that stopping consuming alcohol would ultimately help to regulate my mood and get me back in control and help me realize 
that I am not multiple different people. I am actually one person, but something was happening with my emotions that I could not regulate them, whether I was drinking or whether I was sober. And that, that was just too much. I couldn't live like that. And surprisingly, and, and I welcomed it with open arms. When it stopped, when I stopped drinking, I realized alcohol was a problem. It was more of a problem than I realized it. Not necessarily because of my quantity of drinking or when I started drinking or anything like that. It was just a problem. Yeah, and I think this evening you, you mentioned earlier that um, you were saying that you didn't feel that you were addicted, but you were well on your way. But but listening to the amount that you were drinking, I would have said that was an addictive amount of alcohol. But it is different for all of us, isn't mm-hmm. it? But it is about when it starts impacting on and affecting our mm-hmm. life and feeding into those loops. And, and two of the loops you've talked about is the addiction loop and the anxiety loop and the mm-hmm. behaviours and the rewards and the patterns and the feelings and the emotions that Polly and I have spoken quite a lot about that on some of our happy hours and about how they all sort of kind of go hand in hand. But I'm just kind of interested to ask because, and I've probably done this as well an awful lot as a mental health practitioner in my previous life, mm-hmm. um, I would tell people, not to drink alcohol on their medication or I would advise them not to mm-hmm. and other people know that I would advise people not to I'd prescribe the medication advise them not to take to drink alcohol and I go home and drink myself with my medication you know because mm-hmm. that's what you do when you're addicted mm-hmm. um but did because I probably felt didn't do this as much as I should have did any of the practitioners ever say to you about drinking and your mood we always say you shouldn't drink this medication but did they ever sit and explain to you about how alcohol would actually alter your serotonin levels and your dopamine levels and would affect your actual mood I think initially very early on in my diagnosis um you know when you when you when you get slapped with the bipolar diagnosis uh, a label and stuff like that they they really do inundate you with a lot of information initially. And it's at a time when you, you're probably the least receptive to it. Mm. Um, you know, uh, this mental health diagnosis is a lifelong thing and everyone has mental health. Everyone has lifelong mental health. Um, I received the information when I was first diagnosed, but do you want to know what I did with the pamphlets? Nothing. Yeah, I just, I just didn't do it. And as I, it's kind of funny, because I immersed myself in trying to learn as much as I could about bipolar disorder. I know about the the neurotransmitters, the dopamine, the, you know, everything that you mentioned, I know about it as it pertains to bipolar disorder. But I think that there was almost a unwillingness to take the step to see how alcohol would impact it. And because like I said, I kind of had it in my mind that alcohol was helping my anxiety. And I have learned that initially it helped just a bit, but in the end it ended up causing more. And I'm not even really sure because like I said, I continued to drink on medication that I shouldn't have been drinking on for as long as I did. 
I don't think I was really ready to hear it or wanted to hear it. Um, I don't feel, I, I kind of do wish that maybe my doctor uh, would have tried to um, talk to me a little bit more about my drinking. I never lied about my drinking um, in the sense that I was doing it. When, when I was asked, I said yes. When I was asked how much I was drinking, I divided by three. <laughs> so and right. I think professionals we always count it by three. <laughs> yeah, and so I think that that's what most people do when they fill out the survey. I think I I think I read like some stat about it. So I was never denying it, but I was never doing it to the to the amount that I I was never being honest about the amount. And you would think I'm going to tell like just a brief little story here. Um, my therapist, I meet with him on Sunday mornings. And I have shown up to more therapy sessions hungover than I would care to admit. I have thrown up in my therapist's garbage can from being that hungover. And uh, this was kind of when I threw up in the garbage can. I that was one of my moments. I was like, this is a low. Um, so... I think that I think I just put a wall up in terms of being willing to accept, uh, like, you know, process the information. And I eventually decided to stop. And when I decided to stop drinking, it was not because a doctor told me to. It was not because my therapist told me uh, to stop. I did it under my own terms. And I think that that was the way that I had to do it because I'm not sure that I would have accepted the information if it came from somebody else. Like I, I felt I, like it needed to come from me. Now, of course, I've, I've read it and I understand it. And part of me wants to like kick myself in the ass for not being willing to accept this information. Um, but I had a status quo. And I had a status quo that I thought was working for me. I thought it was helping me with my anxiety. I didn't see the connection between drinking and my mood. And um, it makes me sad in a way, but at the same time, I feel kind of empowered right now because everything that I have now done, I have done like on my own accord, right? And Maybe I've understood the information a little bit too, no, I'm not going to say too late. It's never too late. Um, I've accepted the information perhaps later than I could have or should have, but I accept it now. And the wonderful thing that has happened from this now is, you know, what with COVID-19 and all this kind of stuff, a lot of us have had really bad mental health years because of COVID-19, the isolation, everything. And I can tell you that 2020, 2021 has been the worst mental health years of my life. And currently I am undergoing some medication changes, which are terrifying. Mm -hmm. And I told my doctor, I think I was 20 days sober. I said, I stopped drinking. And this was a welcomed <laughs> announcement. And then I spoke with her again about, you know, 30, I was like, I'm 50 days sober. And then on, I think maybe day 75, I had another appointment and she said, okay, we're going to go test your 
liver function. We're going to get your liver enzymes checked. And because you have stopped drinking, and I think that this is a long-term change for you, I think that we can explore a new possibility for medications for you. And this was not a situation where it was like, you can't take this medication unless you stop drinking. That wasn't it. It was, you've stopped drinking. You have done this for yourself. You have accepted the information. You have made the connections. You realize this is not good for your health. And because I've done that all on my own, I feel like now I am being rewarded with the opportunity to try something new that may help my mental health. And I didn't have that opportunity before. If it was stop drinking and you can take that medication, that wouldn't have worked, right? Mm -hmm. I had to do it on my own. And the the timeline was, you know, it was long. Um, It could have happened quicker, but doing it on your own. Like it's, I think it's important that you have to realize it on your own really. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of, it was a surprise. I had no idea that my psychiatrist was going to be like, Oh, well there's, you know, there's a whole other world of possibilities for you. And, you know, cause I'm feeling like I'm, I'm, I'm out of options, you know, and nothing is working. Nothing is helping me. I just keep on getting worse and worse. I've stopped drinking. I feel a bit better, but, but now I have possibilities. I also now know that I have to get my liver enzymes and liver function tested, tested a heck of a lot more. So if I start drinking again, my psychiatrist is going to know, um, but, um, this is a gift for me. This is a gift. I came to this realization to be sober on my own. And after a hellish year, I've now been given the opportunity to try something new that might be able to help me significantly more. And, I am beyond grateful for that. I am beyond grateful for that. That medication will not be the reason why I am sober. The reason why I am sober is because I have an unhealthy relationship with alcohol and I don't like it. I don't like where it's going. I, I know I can't moderate and I took way too long to accept certain truths about alcohol. And that is why I'm going to stay sober is because of me yeah and and that is who we have to do it for we have to Mm -hmm. do it for ourselves we have to have that wake-up call we have to have that moment um yes we can be given all the information we need but we have to be in the right time the right place Mm -hmm. the right mindset to do it and as you say mental health is for all of us the same as physical health um, but when we think of mental health, we just think of illness, you know, um, but it's really important that we work in our mental health in the same way we do our physical health and trying to keep it as fit and healthy as possible. And, um, you know, even some of those leaflets that you would have been given about bipolar disorder, um, I, I'd probably stake some money on it. They didn't have an awful lot of information about alcohol in it because it's, we just yeah. we it's don't the weird act- thing. It, like the, the, especially there's a connection, the mania part and the addictive behaviors. Like, you know, I, I firmly believe that, um, okay. Yes. Being presented with a whole bunch of information at one time is probably never a good idea, but the conversation really needs to be had that, um, you know, if you have a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, um, and 
it doesn't matter whether or not you have bipolar disorder or not, but if you do have bipolar disorder and you are experiencing mania or hypomania or, you know, your elevated mood state, you, you are at risk for addictive behaviors. And, you know, I think that I did have an awareness of that, but I do think that needs to be emphasized and, uh, you kind of need to be out on, on the lookout. You don't want to be like, you know, digging and searching and all that kind of stuff. But um, I think that should be part of the package, you know? Um, so. Yeah, I think so. In in all healthcare, you know, in mm-hmm. every area, I think perhaps mental health, hopefully we ask it a bit more, but I don't think necessarily in general practice. I know I certainly with all my physical diagnoses and disabilities, I wasn't asked about alcohol but like you I would have lied about it you know um Mm -hmm. so we're not always honest and 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 GPs don't always ask and I I think sometimes a lot of what our answers will be is normalized anyway I mean I recently told my GP I think I'd I'd got to about nine months sober I think and I actually told him for the first time that I'm actually nine months sober and I'm feeling a whole lot better and he said, how much were you drinking? I said, well, at least a bottle of wine a night for 22 years, at least. Mm-hmm. And that's my minimum, you know. Um, most people, probably in the UK, drink a bottle of wine a night, you know, of, of wine mm-hmm. a night. And they see that as normal, um, you know. So it's kind of, kind of scary. But I'm hoping that the shift is starting to change a bit more and that sort of the loops are being connected and we'll start to, to make a difference and that's why we do these podcasts in in the hope that just somebody will be listening and that's why we've got the Sabre Town um web, web page um so it's www.sabertownpodcast.com for lots of resources that's run by Drifter who says oh I love CC say hello to her so I'm giving <laughs> a big hello hi Drifter from, from <laughs> So, I was so um, starstruck when he was on uh, the Zoom call and I was hosting it. I was like, oh, my gosh, he's here. Uh, <laughs> and when I heard him talk, I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, he, he might be coming by tonight, actually, on the Zoom. I might actually try and get to a Zoom tonight as well, mm-hmm. um, which should be good. Um, j- just before we finish, I just wanted to, because a lot of people when we talk about bipolar, Mm-hmm. Um, because you did touch on this about your emotional dysregulation mm-hmm. and a lot of people think of bipolar as two moods it used to be called manic depressive so people yeah. think of it as manic mood and a depressive mood yeah. and also a lot of people um, when they think of mania they think of people being excited and mm-hmm. happy and that euphoric <laughs> would you like to just dispel that myth a little bit and tell people how you feel when you are high and manic I can honestly tell you in my personal experience and I hate the fact that I'm about to say this um, mania is way worse than depression mania is where you destroy things you destroy things that you cannot repair you destroy relationships you destroy trust um, you do it without knowing why you act without consequence and believe me I'm still paying off the credit card um you know from this mania is initially 
as you are starting to go into it, you kind of sometimes will pass through this hypomania phase, which can be characterized by, you know, productivity and, you know, all the, you know, these, these good things. But when you go into a full-blown mania, um, it's not fun. You might think it's fun while you're in it. But part of the reason why you were going to get depressed afterwards, because this is the, this is how it works. You, you know, you do cycle between these um, mood states. Sometimes the um, extremes are not as big as other times, but part of the reason why you're getting depressed after you've had a manic episode is because of everything that you did during that manic episode, all of the consequences of your behaviors that you were not properly considering they hit you in the face and they make you feel so I can't even describe it um and I would never if I had to pick between mania and depression like you know it's an impossible choice but I can to dispel the myth about mania you know, kind of being fun and all this kind of stuff. It might look that way as an outsider, but ultimately that person who is experiencing the mania, um, they're going through a very destructive time in their lives and they do not properly realize it. And they will have to be left to deal with that later. And the amount, again, I'm going to bring up these emotions, guilt, shame, why, I can't believe I did that. You know, I've completely destroyed my finances. Why do I have $20,000 debt? You know, why do I, you know, and you can't understand, you can't relate to yourself when you, once you come down, you can't relate to yourself when you were, you know, up in there. And so um, I think I fear mania um, more than I fear depression. Um, You know, I've, I've, I've dealt with a depression and I do have quite a dip, few different things that have helped me and gotten me through. Um, and uh, I'm, I feel like I'm more receptive to treatment and health when I'm dealing with depression. But when I'm in mania, I will, I'll stop going to my doctor's appointments. Yes. That's when I'm going to say, Oh yeah, I don't need medication. I'm perfectly healthy. I'm, I'm totally fine. You know, um, Anything that I am being responsible for has the potential to leave me. And so, um, yeah, I'm, that is part of the reason. And I'm going to just throw out a stat that I heard somewhere on average, it takes people with bipolar disorder about eight years to be diagnosed. And part of the reason for that is because when you're experiencing a mania or a hypomania, you think that there is nothing wrong with you. And I don't want to say that there's anything wrong with you, but it is not normal or healthy behavior, but you can't realize that. And so people do not seek help when they're in that state. They don't recognize it as being um, a place of needing help. And that's why so many people are getting diagnosed with bipolar disorder later in their lives, um, often in their early 30s. Why did I get diagnosed when I was 23? Easy peasy. I got the genetic line, right? (laughs) So that, uh, that made it easier for me. I consider myself to be one of the lucky ones that I got diagnosed with bipolar disorder as, as young as I have, because I have learned a lot of things. I'm, I'm only 38 and I've 
done full cycles. I've had four full cycles. I work about on a five-year cycle, right? And I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt, you know, like four times. So I know what it looks like. I can prepare, like, you know, I mentioned I'm in a, a serious relationship now. I can prepare him. I can tell him what he needs to know, how he can help me, right? Because I've seen it that many more times and I've known what it is. But when you don't know what it is, it's it's terrifying. It's scary. It's scary. So, I mean, thank you. So, and it is such an important subject, you know, and as you said, it is so closely linked with addictions. Um, so I, that's why I was so keen to sort of talk to you and for us to talk about this as well and and for people to, to hear about bipolar and and the links with addiction because there's lots of people that are going to be listening that may have some of these symptoms and if you are at all worried please please go and see your medical practitioner go and talk to them about it um don't necessarily do these bipolar tests online and that because they're not the yes <laughs> and they'll show you all to have bipolar um go and talk to go and talk to somebody that knows um one of the biggest key things for, for me as as well of, of identifying with bipolar is that very often your, your moods just change suddenly for no reason mm-hmm. it isn't a reaction sometimes it's in reaction to certain mm-hmm. situations because you're going to have the normal reactions as we all have you know but um your moods can change very very suddenly for no reason and yeah. can be completely completely up there or completely down there and you know completely off off the scale um that's kind of the thing is it's not necessarily oh I only get high moods and low moods that's not mm. what the disorder is because everybody gets that Mm. it's regulating when and how and how frequently right I'm what we call a rapid cycler so I go like really fast I'm like woo! I go up and down and up and down in a matter of a day right Mm. it's Everyone experiences high moods and low moods in response to whatever's happening to them. But when you cannot regulate them, um, that's when it becomes, um, you know, that's what and it can really impact your life. And like I said, I got to the point where I wasn't even aware that my, my moods were changing. And so it's more of a uh, regulation a disorder. And I think that's where people need to draw the line with it. It's not about highs and lows. It's how we regulate the highs and lows. Yeah. And that, that as you say, could be very erratic and um, all <laughs> and, uh, and yeah. And, and so I think, you know, it's really important to, to get that out there and it's really brave of you to come in and talk about that and share, but I can see that you're probably as passionate about mental health as I am as well. Yeah. <laughs> talking about it and and you know because it it is the norm and it is something we need to look after our mental health alcohol is not going to do that it is going to make things worse um but the real key thing with sobriety with mental health with physical health with the relationships is communication mm-hmm. and um you know as you, as you say you've got a plan for yours you've spoken to your partner um he knows what to do you know how to be prepared and um so if anyone has any doubts or any concerns about mental health or about sobriety or about your alcohol use and you want support then we'd always recommend that you go and see a mental health practitioner or your your doctor we call them general practitioners over here our gps i, I think you talk, who do you go to do you have a, doctors over there like 
medics that just cover all general aspects of your care? Um, I have a, a family doctor, which we we do also call GPs. Um, okay. I also have a psychiatrist who is a medical doctor who prescribes my medication. Um, mm-hmm. And I also have my therapist is actually a social worker um, who has their master's in counseling. Um, there are also psychologists. So uh, psychologists are not medical doctors. They are people who have what would be like a, a PhD in psychology or counseling or something like that. Um, I have had periods where my mental health was managed by my um, family doctor, my GP, uh, but I have been uh, lucky enough to actually be under the care of the same psychiatrist for over 10 years. And I've been with the same therapist for, for over five years. And, um, you know, I'm lucky that I have access to these resources, but ultimately the, your first line of, um, help is, you know, you're, you're going to go to your, your medical doctor. Um, another thing that I would recommend doing, if you are worried at all about your, your moods and how you're, um, how they're fluctuating and stuff like that, what got me through those first couple of years is I did a lot of like journaling and tracking. Right. And it's, don't get me wrong. It's a total pain in the butt, but sometimes you can't see the patterns um, unless you you track them and bringing that type of information with you um, when you go see your doctor um, can be really can be really helpful and I tend to always try to go in prepared Um, even on the I am sober app uh, you can select at the end of the day when you review your day all of the different emojis Um, this is actually what I've been using to track lately. And so my last psychiatrist appointment, I was like, I had a 13 good days, um, (laughs) according to my emoji selection. Um, and it's, it can be that simple. It can be that simple. It doesn't have to be paragraphs. It doesn't have to be line graphs or things like that. Check in at the end of the day, pick an emoji and you will, you will see a, a trend. And if you make a few notes, you'll also be able to see what activities are making you feel good, what activities are happening when you're not feeling good. And so I love that part um, of, of the app because it, it can help you not just with uh, managing your sobriety, um, but with managing your, your mental health. And like, like I said, I truly believe that they're connected. And especially as you start, you know, coming out of, you know, when you stop drinking, you're coming out of this, um, you know, you feel a lot of feels, right? And it's, it's good. It's, it's good to acknowledge them and be aware of them. And yeah, so do you do your daily, make your pledge and do your daily check in. Because feelings are normal, right? Yeah, they're normal. We just block them for so long. But hey, they're normal. They're telling us something good and bad ones. They're meant to be there. And they're meant to go. Yeah. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure, Cece. Thank this you so much. Lot. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on my train. I'm sorry that we had a bit of a bad connection, a bit of signal failure every now and again, and that uh, I had to stick my head out the train. So you may have heard all sorts of geese and wildlife, but it's fine. Um, but we got there in the end and we're pulling into the station. Um, so until next time, I'm going to say bye bye.